Hello, and welcome to Spectology, the science fiction book club podcast. I'm your host, Adrian. Spectology is a science fiction book club podcast where mostly we pick books, read them, and talk about them. We're also, at this point in time, doing what we're calling our digital book tour, where we are inviting authors on to talk about their books, since they are, at the moment, unable to travel and do traditional book tours. I'm very pleased to announce that we have S.A. Jones, uh, Serge Jones, the author of The Fortress, joining us today. Serge, would you like to uh, introduce us a little bit and also tell us a little bit about The Fortress? Certainly. Uh, Thank you so much for having me on your show. Uh, Had things gone to plan, I would have been in New York City doing a book tour, but alas... A certain virus that shall remain nameless has prevented that. (laughs) So I am the author of The Fortress. And The Fortress is a speculative fiction novel set in a time very like our own, but distinguished from our current reality by having a parallel city-state called The Fortress. And that fortress houses the indigenous inhabitants of the land. Those inhabitants are called the Vake. And they are a largely female society run and inhabited by their own codes, their own rules, their own history and their own governance structure. The story follows a man named Jonathan Bridge, who enters the fortress as a supplicant for a period of one year. And he does that in a last-ditch attempt to save his marriage, which is foundering because of some rather unsavoury behaviour on his part. So that's the premise. Yeah, it's um, that is the premise, but I also feel in some ways, while it's a very good premise, sells short just how both gut-wrenching and enjoyable at the same time this novel is. I uh you know I've been I've been reading it here in preparation for this and have been somewhat astounded by it quite frankly. So uh, I'm really excited to have you on and to talk about it. Um I think before we do that, uh we like to do content warnings for books that um you know might have content that our readers or our listeners rather uh, should be aware of. I think this is one of them in that it's a book about violence, that violence includes a lot of sexual violence, uh, violence and sexual violence towards children, uh, as well as, you know, a lot of violence towards both women and men of a sexual variety. And it's, um, you know, I always want to put that out there ahead of time. That said, it is one of the books that I've read that handles that content in a you know really thoughtful and thought-provoking way um not in one you know this is something this is my editorializing now but it's it's not um prurient in any way and i i've i've really been enjoying reading it um so i know you have a little bit of a reading uh ready do you want to do that and then we can talk about the book a little bit for sure so i'm going to read a couple of passages from the start of the book Just by way of context, this is the moment in which our anti-hero Jonathan meets Mandalay, who is the vake to whom he is assigned and will be spending a good part of the next 12 months. Please sit down. 
Jonathan lowered himself awkwardly to the ground, monitoring the stay of his hem. He wasn't as limber as he'd once been. Long lunches and immobile hours in front of a computer screen had reeled in his joints. The woman watched him coolly. When he was seated on the cushion, she passed him the goblet of tea. Should I keep the hood on? Jonathan asked her hopefully. She smiled, amused. I'm not the woman, so you may remove the hood if you so choose. How was your tea? He took a sip. It was hot and sweet with an aftertaste of aniseed, nothing like the bitter black coffee he usually drank. I tend the gardens between the Drian's coast and the eastern buildings. You are assigned to me. Assigned. She wasn't Jonathan's type. That is to say, she wasn't pert-breasted and young with burnished salon skin. Her long auburn hair fell in messy waves down her back, and she was pale, almost reflectively so. Jonathan vaguely wondered how she kept her skin so white under the sun in the gardens. He found it impossible to guess her age. Perhaps late 30s, perhaps early 40s. Around his age. He couldn't imagine fucking her. Lift up your masjithra. What? Her brows arrowed above her flinty green eyes. Jonathan rested the goblet on the ground beside him and lifted the robe to his upper thigh. Higher. He kept lifting until his cock and balls were in full view. He had a strong urge to stand up so he could suck his stomach in and flex his thighs, the way he did with the poodles. Instead, he sat there obediently, holding up his gown for a stranger's forensic observation. You can lower them as Jutra now. Was she impressed? Disappointed? Bored? Her impassive face gave nothing away. Wonderful. Thank you. It's very fun listening to that again after having read a lot more. I, so I, I will confess I haven't yet finished the novel, but I, um, after reading uh, the majority of it at this point, you know, I, I now all of a sudden have this understanding of what so many of these things mean, whereas that's essentially the beginning of the novel that you're really thrust into this world. Um, so I wanted to ask you a little bit about the world and about the way that you went about, you know, kind of, I guess, doing world building for this. Um, do you, I, I'm, I'm actually, I'm, I'm, I'm personally always really interested in the language. So maybe we can start there. What kind of inspired you to, you know, draw this kind of like language and this culture of people, um, in this book? Well, the world of the vague emerged out of a narrative necessity, really. I haven't traditionally been what you would call a sci-fi or a spec fiction writer. I've usually written in a very uh, realist literary genre mode. But what I was really curious about was the question of what would it take a man like Jonathan to change? So I wanted to write a book about the labours of change and thinking about masculinity. And while I was doing that, it occurred to me that I couldn't very well tell that story if I set it in the real world. 
because I'm not entirely convinced um, that that change is possible. So I had to construct a world in which Jonathan would be forced to rethink many of the things that he takes for granted. So that was the genesis of the idea of the vague. And I started thinking about what a possibly matriarchal society that had a radically different take on sex, reproduction, personal sovereignty, the binary of femininity and masculinity, what might that look like? So in some ways, the vague function as an obverse reality to our own. Mm-hmm. And it was a possibility to to set up the kind of questions I wanted to explore. In terms of the language, I was really drawn to a set of sounds that are very sibilant so that when you say them, um, there's a satisfying, (laughs) almost onomatopoeic uh, element. I knew that I wanted something vaguely Nordic, vaguely Germanic. I think in that respect I had been quite influenced by Sigrid Unset's Kristen Lovransdatter, um, who herself is a is a heroine that is that has heavily influenced me. So it, it it grew, I guess, out of an out of an instinct about how vague would sound. Wonderful. Yeah, I noticed when reading it that sometimes I would get to a word and I would immediately know what it meant and also be just unsure if it was actually like a word or not, if that makes sense. Like it was something like <laughs> in the vague language or if it was something that I, I was just a, you know, English word that I don't use or see particularly frequently. And that um, feeling of, you know, being being a little bit put on, you know, like you're know, stepping back a little bit, being put on my back feet, I think is perfect for the book. <laughs> well, I'm really so thrilled to hear you say that the language just melded uh, into the story because from a writer's perspective, the last thing you want is for the reader to be reading along and they go, oh, yes, it's the MacGuffin, Mm. Uh, the thing that's just, you know, so obviously placed in the book for a specific reason. So I, I do hope it feels organic. No, it feels great. It also, you know, at one point you you mentioned these birds, and I think it helps that I've been to Australia once, but I, you know, I, I have lived in America for my whole life. But the one thing I know about Australia is there are strange birds everywhere. And so I had to look up or like, are these birds real or not? <laughs> <laughs> I love that. <laughs> um, so it's been, it's been a very enjoyable experience from that. I also, you know, you mentioned this issue of, you know, what does it take for someone to change? And while I've been reading the novel, the, the sort of like, you know, while gender is obviously like a top kind of theme and something we'll talk about here shortly. I've also noticed this theme of the idea of prisons versus restorative justice and this idea of like 
again, like the people in this fortress, like it's not a prison, but in some ways it, you know, fits, I would say some of the same, you know, maybe like sociological niche as a prison does in our society, but its goal feels very different from what, you know, Western prisons do. And I was wondering how you thought about that in, in writing this novel. So it was very clear when I set this up, I did not want the fortress to be a prison. I did not want the power imbalance to be radical and entirely stable. So at the very beginning of the novel, you know, Mandalay explains to Jonathan the nature of his confinement. And the rules are, are, are really prescriptive, but they're mutual. They're, they're mutual obligations. So there are things that Jonathan must do and things he can't do. But equally, as Mandalay explains to him, the vague obligations to him are very strong also. So there are limits to the uses to which his body will be put. Uh, he will not be scarred or physically um, permeated in any way. He will not labour beyond, uh, I think it's 12 hours in 24. So to some degree, this is not an, an anarchic free-for-all society. It's highly codified. And one of the other things I, I thought about a great deal was labour, physical labour. I think it's really interesting to me that if you look in um, the Western theological tradition, the idea of atonement through labour is really strong. This idea that the body can be subjected to a certain amount of suffering and through that can come enlightenment. And, and you see this in, in the, the Christ story, the suffering on the cross. You see it in some pretty extreme practices uh, in parts of the Christian church with the wearing of soul pieces or, or hair shirts, this kind of mortification of the flesh in order to gain an insight into appetites and desires and, and through that come at a, at a greater sense of knowledge. So that was really key in terms of the world planning. We see Jonathan um, very physical. So he's a man who spent most of his adult life behind a desk, is a highly cerebral life, suddenly all of that is gone and he's labouring in a field. He's growing things. He's watering plants. He's creating tinctures and balms. It's a wildly different experience um, of work. Mm -hmm. And while he's doing this, he has a great deal of time to think. And, and one of the strictures in Vake society is, the men in the fortress can't ask questions unless they've been given two contradictory sets of instructions. So he can't question. He has to puzzle everything out. So he spends a lot of time physically labouring but going round and round in his head, interrogating his thoughts, interrogating his past. One of, you know, you did mention sort of these these Christian, you know, sometimes like monastic 
um, ideals. And that's the other thing that the fortress reminds me of is almost like a monastery. It's like some combination of like society, monastery, prison and restorative justice center. And, you know, in particular, like two things kind of drew out. One was there's this moment where, um, you know, not to, not to give anything away, obviously, but where a bunch of men are, you know, essentially like greeted by some school children and they all instinctively bow to them. And Jonathan thinks to himself and recognizes like, oh, we've never been told to bow and we've never told each other to bow, but like we've all sort of like come to a similar understanding that that's the proper way to like supplicate ourselves to even these young women and there's something very real about that as someone who is Buddhist. And when I first started going to the, the, the temple, the Zen center that I go to now, a lot of learning the rituals felt like that. It felt like watching other people sort of like guessing what it would take to do. You know, they never sit you down and tell you like, this is X, this is Y, this is Z, like, this is what you're supposed to do here. This is what you're supposed to do there. You sort of like build it and watch it get built together. And, um, I really, I really like that one little like note really stood out to me as this very kind of real thing of these men, you know, attempting to puzzle their place in the world. Um, and potentially, you know, I wonder if they are building the rituals themselves or if it is what the, you know, <laughs> the vague want or if it doesn't matter to the vague. Right. And these questions sort of like keep popping up as well. Look, you're right. And I very consciously wrote the book from Jonathan's perspective. So what we learn of the vague largely comes through Jonathan's own experience of it. Um, and interestingly, that, that's been a point of some frustration for some readers. They've contacted me and said, you know, I want to, I want to learn more about the fortress. I want to know more about um, the philosophy and, and the history of this. Um, but the vague don't think it's their job to give Jonathan a treatise on this. Uh, as you say, he kind of has to figure it out for himself and from what he gleans from their relationship with him. Mm -hmm. And it is, you know, it, it's funny in, in that way, you, you know, the, the readers are mirroring Jonathan's experience, except for they're able to ask questions, I suppose. <laughs> um, but I think that that's somewhat, you know, there's something to reading this book that, you know, because uh, I too have found myself being like, oh, I want to know more about this world. I want to know more. And being seeing it from Jonathan's eyes also gives you as the reader like a, a keen sense of what he's going through in a way that is not always true of this kind of um, I forget if it's written in first or close third person, but but that kind of like close personification of a single character. Like, you know, there's something you know, in game design. We talk about like Ludo narrative and the sense of like, does the gameplay match the story being told? And there's something here about that where like the experience of reading it fits very well with the story that you're telling. It's, it's gratifying uh, to hear you say that because when I began thinking about this book tonally, I was acutely aware I wanted the reader to have a very physical experience in reading this book. Mm. I didn't want it to be cerebral. I mm -hmm. wanted the reader to experience this book in the body. So not just following closely 
Jonathan's experience, which is highly physical, um, but also feeling those conflicting feelings of arousal and self-censorship and shame, uh, which are such bodily. I mean, we talk about them as emotions, but, you know, they're things that happen at the cellular level. They're mm-hmm. so physical. And, and that was the reader I really wanted um, for this book. Well, I, at least in me, you found it. I am finding I've at times had to. And it's funny, I'll get up sometimes while reading the book and I won't even notice it until I've done it, that I've put the book down and I'm beginning to pace because all of a sudden I'm like, oh, I'm anxious right now. Like I'm feeling this, you know, and it is, you're so right that the like emotions are so embodied and not just, you know, we think of them as things in our head, but they're really things in our chests and our arms and our groins and our legs and everywhere else in our body. And I've definitely been noticing that while reading the book, these sort of like sensations in my body being like, oh, that's right. Oh, I feel stressed out about this or I feel really excited for Jonathan somehow, you know, whatever it might be at the time. I, I actually I had, I had a girlfriend who called me up while she was reading the book and she finally up. She said, look, I'm getting really turned on. And I'm not sure I should be turned on. So I'm really feeling very weird about this. And I said, well, good, because that is exactly the response I wanted. Oh, that's wonderful. That's very good. I actually, you know, the, I, I just had one more thought that I'm going to kind of go and ask a question about that, which is you mentioned the, you know, this person who is so cerebral in his day-to-day life. He, he works in strategy. I, I love his description of what strategy is too. Um, as someone who like does some strategy work and strategy consulting, I found that very funny. Um, I might steal some of it as well because you do a better job describing it than I do when I talk to my parents. Um, but I, I love the, um, <clears throat> the sense of he's in his, you know, he's out in the world, he's growing things. And I feel like right now, you know, in given the current situation, as we say, uh, a lot of us are, are, in, are doing that as well. Like I know a lot of my friends who are making sourdough and suddenly tending a sourdough starter or who are gardening for the first times, right? Or who are, you know, like myself, just cooking a whole lot and really thinking about the stuff that we're physically making for ourselves and for the very small number of people around us at the time. And, um, you know, it is, it is, there's something very interesting about work and being in tune with what we're making with our hands that, you know, provides a different sort of thinking. It's not a cerebral thinking necessarily, but it is a form of thinking. I, I agree with you. In fact, I've coined a new word, isotrope, which is a new way of thinking about the world brought on through lockdown. And it's funny, isn't it? Up until three months ago, I had never heard the term sourdough starter. (laughs) Now every second person on my Facebook page has a sourdough starter. (laughs) Right. Well, I think, you know, being the millennial, we we, we have our plants and our sourdough starters because we can hardly afford children and pets these days. But (laughs) Yeah, point taken. (laughs) I um I did want to, you know, talk a little bit about, you know, some of the things that are causing these feelings in the reader, right? Like you write about these very sensitive topics, rape, pedophilia, um, you know, extreme bouts of violence. And I was just curious, like when you're writing about those, how you think about them, like what you kind of like wanted to say about them to the reader, maybe? 
So if your listeners are familiar with The Handmaid's Tale, uh, Margaret Atwood made a comment about that book where she said everything that happened in there that people have said was extreme or unlikely. She actually took from a real-life incident. Uh, And similarly, I did that with a lot of what is in the fortress. I took events that had happened to me or to women that I know and kind of flipped them and changed the context, changed the gender dynamics. So I I personally don't feel, and I certainly didn't want anything in this book to be gratuitous, which granted sounds faintly bizarre um, about a book that is quite pornographic uh, at some points. But I would argue strongly that, that all of those scenes serve a very specific narrative and thematic purpose. So if I could give an example The earliest sex scene uh, that happens in the book involves a vake who comes to Jonathan's bed at night and has sex with him. So one of the principles that Jonathan must consent to is that he cannot refuse sex from any person within the fortress who asks it. So this woman comes to his bed And she leaves. And the next morning, Jonathan wakes up to discover that he is uh, covered in blood. And his his initial response is complete panic. He thinks he's been injured. And then he realises that the vape was menstruating and she's left his menstrual blood behind. And he has quite an extreme... Uh, extreme response to this, part shame, part fury. Uh, He says he smells like prey. Now, where that scene came from is when I was in year nine, which I think you Americans call junior high. Yes. I walked into the bathroom at my school gym and found a classmate in a state of extreme panic and distress scrubbing down the ugly grey skirts that were part of our uniform, um, scrubbing it of, of menstrual blood. And we sort of we had this hurried conversation uh, where I said, okay, look, I will go and find X person who was her friend and, and, and bring her here and I will locate some sanitary products for you. I have not spoken about that until right now. Mm. She asked me to keep that secret, and I did. And it was only recently I was writing a piece about uh, the uses of sex in the fortress that I wrote about it. So the the shame that comes with being female and and having a, a female reproductive system, it's so entrenched. Yeah, that, that I have not spoken about that because she asked me not to. And she wasn't a close friend. She's not somebody I'm still in touch with. But I thought even in fiction, you, 
there's there's one book I could think of, and it's Helen Garner's Monkey Grip, in in which um, menstruation is just a fact, divorced from shame or really covert behaviours. So to have it so just such a practical reality that doesn't interfere in one's sex life uh, in the fortress, I thought was an interesting idea. But all of the scenes in this book that are, are highly sexual are an obverse of something that happened or were inspired by something that happened. And I think one of the, like, really interesting things about that is that, like, I, I've had the experience of reading some of this type of science fiction where there might be something of like, oh, well, it's the obverse. And so you can see it's just as bad, you know, in the other direction. And that's kind of the message is like, it's bad for everyone. But there's something about this that it's the obverse, but it still takes into mind the patriarchal system of the real world and the outside world that Jonathan comes from, even if the vague society doesn't exist in those same rules. And there's something about that. It's not simply that like, oh, see how bad this is when done on the other side, but also that like there's there's a different tinge to it. And it really, I don't know, I've really been enjoying this sort of like trying to feel out almost the edges of sexuality and gender and, you know, societal's, society's gender roles in particular through that process. It's a really kind of intricate and almost touching process in a way, while it's also um, often violent and, and kind of, you know, difficult to read subject matter. Um, I love that phrase you just used, feel, feel your way through it. Because that ideally is what I would want the reader to do. And, and I hope that, re- that people who are listening don't get the impression that this is a really binary didactic text uh, that just kind of sets up two opposites and, and argues them out, if you like. I, I'd like to think it's um, a little more nuanced and complex than that. Oh, I think it absolutely is. And I think, you know, there's there's something about the Vike that, uh, or the Vake, uh, that I, while they're very interesting, I don't know that I particularly also like them or their culture, <laughs> you know? <laughs> <laughs> I, I just said this to a... Uh, an interviewer a couple of months ago, I said, look, this is not a political treatise. If I was to develop a, a manifesto, it wouldn't be this. <laughs> the the vague is, not, is not my idealised society. <laughs> um, and then, so I have, you know, maybe one other, I don't know if this is a question or a comment, but it kind of, it fits in the same realm, which is another thing that I've, appreciated that you've done because I often find these kind of novels about gender really do place gender at a sort of biological place. Um, and yet the vague also have trans women amongst their membership. And, you know, there was honestly something going into this novel that I was a little worried about because so many, you know, science, feminist science fiction in particular has a long history of being, you know, maybe at best somewhat you know, ignorant about trans issues in writing about uh, these feminist issues in particular. And I, I really appreciated that. And I kind of wondered your thought process going into that and how you, you know, how you thought about womanhood amongst the society. Great question. Uh, when I first started writing this book, the Vake were much more homogenous um, 
then they ended up being in their final incarnation. So in the first draft, all of the vague were um, what we would think of as physically vague. So hmm. cis women, black skin, and the alabaster blonde hair. And then as I started really thinking about the society and going deeper and deeper and deeper, it occurred to me that actually being vague more than anything is a psychological state. And it's a psychological state of full physical sovereignty. None of the people who inhabit the fortress fear men. These are people for whom the idea of walking to your car at night, carrying your keys between your knuckles would make sense. So when I began to think about it, it seemed to me that, that a body, any kind of body, that could move through the world like that was vague. And so I really moved away from this idea of a physically and biologically homogenous vague society. So while there are, um, if you like, ancestral vague who, who physically um, have, a, have a lot of similar characteristics, the precondition for entering vague society is not that you have that ancestry. If you can demonstrate that you can inhabit that state of mind, you can become vague. So we have characters like Mandalay who was not born in the fortress. Uh, she's white, where the ancestral vague are black. And we have characters like uh, Lalia, who is a, a trans woman. And then we have characters like Daid, who is actually a resident in the fortress. And, and his status is, is not entirely clear but it appears that he is transitioning perhaps to a place of being vague. So, yeah, I, I certainly did not want to write a novel that was biologically essentialist. I also, I, I do, I really appreciate, uh, how, how do you pronounce his name? Daig? I was never Daid. sure. Daid. I. He's great. <laughs> what a Isn't great he? <laughs> I just I find myself very fond of him. I, I am super fond of him too. And you know, you would be astonished by the number of men who tell me they could play Daid in a movie version of The Fortress. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> well, that's wonderful. I think that's all the questions I have on my end. So do you want to do a sort of second reading and then we can finish up? I certainly will. And I will just continue on from where I was before. So Mandalay is speaking at this point. We take very few supplicants, and those we do, we have to be sure can adapt to life here. I've read your file. She paused to take a sip of tea, then held his eyes with her level gaze. Your wife is pregnant. This didn't seem to be a question, so Jonathan didn't reply. Your wife is five months pregnant. You will miss the birth of your first child. Does that trouble you? Yes. Does that trouble your wife? Yes. So why are you here? 
You have my file, he thought. You probably know the reasons better than I do. I want to be a good father, he said. I don't know another way of doing that, becoming that. Better I miss the birth than the rest of her life. She inclined her head to one side. Her? Your file doesn't specify a gender. We don't know the baby's sex. For some reason, I think of her as a her. Anyway, it sounds much better than it. Mm. You want to be a good father. Why don't you go to prenatal classes? That's what most men would do. I'm not most men. <laughs> That's what most men say. <laughs> Jonathan grew impatient, as he always did when people were cryptic. He reached up to adjust his tie, his habit when annoyed, and then remembered he wasn't wearing one. Then as Jethra shifted around his collarbone. My wife wanted me to come, he said flatly. It was the only condition on which she'd take me back. The woman gave a dismissive wave of her hand. The poor reason, it lacks conviction on your part. Acting on someone else's wishes won't be enough to sustain you here. I've been accepted, haven't I? Yes, you have. But this is your last opportunity to reconsider. Once you pass through the Vea Gate and enter the fortress proper, there's no going back. You see out your time, one year. I urge you to think better of it. He shook his head. Your relationship to the vague and your status here will be unlike anything you have experienced before. It is almost impossible to give you an accurate analogy of your relationship to us. I can tell you what you and we are not. The fortress is not a jail, although you will be held under guard if you break our laws. You are not a prisoner, but your movements, your time, your labour will be almost entirely regulated. The vake will direct when and what you eat, when you sleep, when you rise. Every 11th day, you will have half a day to spend according to your inclination and wishes. This is known as the half. You're free to roam around a prescribed area of the grounds. On all other days, the spaces you inhabit and what you do there will be directed by us. Perhaps the most difficult thing to grasp about your relationship to us is the nature of your submission. While you stay with us, you are to obey all vague commands and you are forbidden to ask questions of us unless explicitly authorised. But we are not in a master-surf relationship. You are not chattel. And our obligations to you are as strong and as binding as those you owe to us. When you come to us, it must be in a state of willingness to empty yourself out and entrust yourself to us. Without that trust, your supplicancy will be futile. You may as well return to your life right now. Your subjectivity must be given to us freely and entirely. We will keep it until you return through the Vea Gate. We will not return it beforehand under any circumstances. Wonderful. Thank you. 
Um, so just as a sort of final question, I am curious, obviously, folks should buy the book. It's very, very good. And I, I you know, hope people buy it. Um, local bookstores, obviously, at this point in time, bookshop.org and, you know, sort of the big baddies at Amazon as a last resort. Uh, but also, is there anything else that you would like to promote, places people can follow you, other ways that potentially they can support you? at a time when supporting each other is one of the best things we can do? Well, look, I I do hope at some point uh, to be in New York City and perhaps we can reprise the events I was meant to do and unfortunately could not. Uh, But more broadly, uh, readers, please get behind Erewhon, which is a new publishing imprint. They are the wonderful people who brought out The Fortress and please do uh, keep your eyes out for Australian fiction. Wonderful. Well, so this is The Fortress by S.A. Jones. Serge, thanks so much for being on. I really, really appreciate this. And, uh, you know, looking forward to finishing the book here in the next day. Thank you, Adrian. And stay safe, everybody. Thanks. Have a good one. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye.